This is Solutions for Climate Revolution, a podcast by Namine Sola. My name is Francesca and my guest today is Atul Kumar. Atul is an environmental scientist, presenter, writer and broadcaster of the climate and biodiversity crisis, spreading knowledge and raising awareness of the key issues facing human society and what we can all do to solve these problems. Atul, hello and welcome. Hi Jesse. hi, thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh, it's great to be chatting with you. I'd like to jump straight in and talk about the last 20 years for you, where you have spent this time immersed in the environmental sector. You studied geography and environmental science at university. You have worked as a renewable energy consultant, and I believe now you divide your time between helping environmental charities fundraise and promoting your book, Alien Places, and its unique hypothetical question. Alien Places is a unique and fascinating concept that encourages us to think outside of our bubble or our human echo chamber to look at what we are doing to the planet from an alien's point of view. Could you talk about your journey and how you came up with Alien Places, how you came up with the Alien Places concept and chat a bit about the alien perspective? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll say my uh, journey probably started uh, when I was 15, sort of the same age as Greta Thunberg, actually. Or, or, Me too. Or slightly younger even. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was when I had a really good uh, geography teacher and um, kind of that's when I first sort of noticed geography. And I was also kind of thinking about this idea that um, climate change since 1994, 95, people were talking about climate change, but also that no one was doing anything about it. And I'm kind of thinking about the various options I could do for my A-levels and further education and all that. And I was kind of thinking, well, yeah, I could be a doctor or I could be a lawyer. But um, actually, first of all, you need a, a habitable planet and then you can do all these other things. And so for me, the most important thing to work on was to make sure that we have a habitable planet. Um, so that's why I went on the geography path, um, including A-levels and then um, undergraduate at university and then masters in uh, environmental management um, at the end of university. Um, and Alien Places came about in my first year at university. Um, a geography essay was set asking a similar question. If an alien comes to visit planet Earth, where would you take it? Where would you show it and why? To illustrate the key issues facing human society. And um, I enjoyed writing it and then, you know, um, handed it in, you know, and then, and then moved on to all the other essays that I had to do throughout university. But um, it was it's the mind because I went traveling after university and it was kind of a little bit of it, a fun talking point, you know, when you're meeting other travelers, you know, oh, you've been to Thailand. Oh, OK, well, that's interesting. If, if we were um, hosting an alien around the world, where would you take it? So it was a bit of a bit of a chatting point when I was traveling, meeting new people, but not nothing major. But then I think what happened was after that, over the years, I learned in the environmental sector that there are always people that know um various statistics including me at some point you know I, I was i was i used to be the guy that knew all the numbers off the top of his head about you know this has happened on sea level rise so far and it's projected to do this in the next few years etc there's there's plenty of information out there there's, there's mountains of evidence there's always new facts and figures to learn um but the, the the problem is actually doing something about it and doing something about it also means thinking differently um, and so I, I kind of have learned over the years that the, the number one problem is, is the way that humans think, the, the method of thinking, the short term way of thinking. Um, we have this um, short lifespan as humans, 85, 90 years or so, and that encourages a short term method of thinking. But we're now at the point where we could be making ourselves extinct through things like climate change and sea level rise. 
and um, and we sort of we we don't take the long term perspective that we need um, in order to solve the problems that we've created for ourselves. So it's very much you know self harm is is really what we're talking about, and we need to shift our thinking. And um, I think only only an outside perspective can can help us with that at the moment. I don't see any other any, any anyone else really addressing the issue specifically with the environmental. Um, challenges. There's there's great philosophers out there living alive now. People like Alain de Botton, very good on psychology and human relationships and that kind of thing. But I think we need a philosophy specifically targeted to the environmental sector, a new framework, a new paradigm of thinking. And and, and fundamentally, that is don't don't think like a human. Think like something other than a human. Think like something that wants to stick around and be sustainable in the long term. I think you've cottoned on and you you're taking such an amazing concept to, to really take us out of our human experience. And it almost forces you to be like, oh, okay, what would I look like if I was looking down on myself from the moon or what would an alien species see? And I think it then, it definitely takes you out of your own bubble and, and makes you look and reassess actually all the things that we're doing and it gives us this, yeah, the importance of perspective and looking outside what we think is normal. And yeah, you've got a podcast as well, Alien Places. It's just, it's wonderful. Could you ch chat a bit about your podcast? Yeah, so um, the podcast is basically inviting guests to um, tell me about the three places that they would show an alien visitor. Um, so, um, and, and through showing the alien those three places, uh, what, what concepts do they want to raise for the alien um, and uh, what solutions do they want to raise for the alien as well. So it's about kind of, it doesn't have to be environmental technically, although people kind of know that I've, I've got that interest um, in the environment, but some of my guests have been not particularly environmentalists and, um, and I, I, I encourage more of that because actually this concept of thinking from an alien perspective can be applied to any issue, can be applied to the issue of, you know, nuclear weapons or abortion or um, politics or diplomacy, any interesting, difficult issue uh, we can apply the alien thinking method to and I've been quite careful in my book to not make it all about the environment so you know we go to Geneva and we talk about the role of the United Nations and diplomacy and that kind of thing and how an alien would um, resolve disputes between people um, so it, it's, it's that different way of thinking and, and so in, in the podcast um, the, the guests are encouraged to um, pick you know any three places that they want to to raise any issues that they want uh, not necessarily environmental um, so I did about sort of 12 or 13 episodes um, in the first phase of the podcast and then I kind of um, updated the format this year in 2020 um, to allow guests to also, in addition to the three places, name three films and three songs that they were playing Alien to also communicate the issues that they want to raise for the Alien in a different way. And that's following on from the book that I published in 2019 where in each chapter I also showed the Alien um, film and played a song to kind of communicate in, in slightly different ways um, how, uh, perhaps the same issues or slightly different issues through the use of film and song. Using art is such an incredible way to I think reach people beyond what they experience in their normal stressful life and I think that is such a key element to, to why people don't feel that they have the, an extra bit of capacity or time to think about their their behaviors and where they spend their money and I think reaching people through through yeah through through books through through art and, and music is it's just 
it's it's definitely it's the side of I think sustainability that I think if we emphasised more and we made it more fun, I think a lot more people would would get on board with it. So I think it's I'm such a big fan. I think it's it's just it's just wonderful. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, the, the fun thing is also is also part of why I've been doing this because you know I've, I've been in the environmental sector my whole career, you know, and and I know that it's really serious stuff. But we, I also know that you, you have to communicate these things in, in a fun way wherever possible. So the alien kind of gives me that opportunity to kind of, um, uh, you know, think from a different perspective, which is fundamentally and philosophically the main requirement. Uh, when, I, when I say the word requirement, I mean literally for our species to continue requirement, but also know that fun is a requirement as well. And, and um, I have to kind of, A, keep myself motivated for, throughout my whole career. You know, it's going to be, I, you know, I think it'd be quite boring without my alien now. Um, and, uh, um, but also engage people that otherwise might have been turned off by the negative messages because there are a lot of negative messages because we have to be accurate and the accuracy involves negativity. Um, but there's no, there's no reason why we can't sort of say negative messages in a fun way and um, hence uh, the use of the alien. I think it, it's, it touches on something that I think it, it's so important because there's so much negativity and we're almost addicted to this, this influx of negative information and, and hype and, and yeah, all these bad things that we hear about in the news and to hear negative things about our future and how we're living our own lives to escape these crazy things that we hear about in the news is, is, is just too much. I think for, I mean, I, yeah, my head feels like it's going to explode some days when I'm just like, Oh my gosh, how can I, so for people who, like us, who haven't made a career out of wanting to progress the sustainable movement, I can, I can totally now see in my, where I've come to in my journey now, how that it can be too much. So I think work like yours is just, it's going to take us to, to the next level of, of getting the mass collaboration that we need on, on the solutions. I think it's just brilliant. Could we talk yeah. about your metaphor, the human race? So it, this is us racing ourselves and in the, I guess, well, what we were in before the rat race, which was leading us to extinction. How did that come about? How did you think of that? Yeah, well, um, so in, in the book, uh, when the alien and I um, reach Beijing, we're in the Olympic Stadium, that was the stadium that was used for the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. And uh, we have a ceremonial 100 meter race, um, an interplanetary 100 meter race between me and the alien. Oh, and, Unsurprisingly, I lose, um, uh, and not because I don't do a good time, but because the alien does an even better time of 5.8 seconds. Um, so um, significantly faster than Usain Bolt. Um, and but of course, this is, this is a metaphor. Um, you know, the alien won that race. And why did the alien win that race? It's because it, it's been better at um, managing its planet sustainably. So it, it's, you know, it, it's one in that sense. There's different levels to this metaphor. You know, when we're, when we're, when we're comparing ourselves against other species, we lose in the example of the alien. Um, also, you know, regardless of aliens or not, we are literally in a race against our own extinction. So we are trying, some people are trying to make us more sustainable. Some people are trying to make us less sustainable. The people that are making us less sustainable are winning. Um, so the, the, yeah. the, um, the, the, the companies that encourage fossil fuels to get pumped out into the air are winning. You know, we have to be, we have to be clear that we are losing the battle um, to um, to stop carbon emissions and and you know whereas physically this is not an, not not sort of about opinions you know the physics of the climate of of, uh, of of the climate and the atmosphere say that we need to stop emitting carbon emissions entirely so we need to be carbon neutral by 2050 at the latest globally and the milestones before that means that we need to have much 
much bigger reductions way before 2050. Um, so it's a race against time. So, so you know, that's the real human race. You know, the real human race is, you know, is, is nothing to do with different races on, on, on the planet within humanity. The real human race is our own race against our own extinction. Yes, I would argue that it's, we are one people and this, this, race, this race that we are in against our own, our own extinction is, is the thing that is going to unite us, I think, even more. Well, I know they said that COVID was the equaliser, but yeah, I think, but I hope that, sort of diverging a little bit, but this, yeah, will Hume, the climate crisis is going to further exacerbate the, the gap between people who have everything and people who have nothing. So it's really people like everyday people like you and me who, who live in a house who like we can make ends meet we might be able to sit, be able to save a little bit like we are the ones that have the ability to and and i would i would argue and, and say quite extremely people might disagree with me when i say this but the the responsibility to be the people that that spend that little bit of extra money on the the biodegradable detergents on the sustainable clothes on the organic food like it's I'm digressing. I don't want to get too far away from from the aliens. I just wanted to pick up on that point because it's so important. And the alien is called the alien because you wanted, or alien for short, as I should say, just so he has, or it, or she, or however. It's, it's gender neutral, gender so, neutral. So, so it's it. Um, and um, yeah. I, I, I sort of I call out in the book the many occasions when people assume it's male because what, you know, I, I don't say at any point in the book that it's a male alien. And, and yet people seem to, seem, seem to assume it's, it's male. Um, I think possibly because I'm male, then people think that you know, we're hanging out. And in fact, in, in, in the first part of the book where the alien and I are traveling the world incognito, um, uh, then I have to dress up the alien as if we're on a stag do. Um, so <laughs> I, pre I pretend that it's my friend getting married and uh, he's um, dressed up as an alien. When, when of course, double bluff it is actually an alien. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a gender neutral alien. Um, I haven't given the alien a name for a very particular reason, and it's because I want the alien to have a universality to it, a generality to it. Uh, the point of the alien um, is not to uh, kind of uh, be for one particular alien, but to be that generic alien, because everyone in their mind is going to have a slightly different vision of what the alien is, or what an, what an alien is. And I, don't want, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of giving it loads and loads of personality and specificity, because then that takes away the function of the alien as a mirror to humanity. So if you think of a mirror, you don't want a mirror with, with loads of personality, do you? You just want a clean, reflective mirror that reflects back exactly and accurately exactly what you are. And that, that's what the alien is doing for us. The alien is a mirror to humanity. And so to give it a name, it would be like, it would be like polluting the mirror a little bit. I don't want it to be to be too specific um, because I want people to be thinking, oh, what would I say to an alien? You know, if, um, uh, for example, if um, an alien was uh, visiting us around um, December 2019 when people were thinking about who to vote for and um, people were thinking that Brexit's a really big deal and everyone was talking about the backstop and then an alien comes down and says, um, oh, okay, you were about to vote on the basis of um, something to do with the border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Uh, you could be voting according to climate change and that massive melting continent of Antarctica that's going to rise by seven meters, your sea level, sea levels, and it's already inevitable that you're going to have 1.2 meter sea level rise. But no, no, you, you want to vote on that detail between the Northern Ireland um, border and, and the rest of Ireland. Yeah, you, you vote on that. You know, yeah. we, what, what would, how would we, how would we react if we were advised by an alien 
to ignore climate change. You know, it's that, it's that kind of, that, that's the point of using the alien. It's, it's not about whether the alien's called Paul or Jeff or Ian or something else. I think, yeah, it's the concept of, of this, this, this need that we have to be able to accept change and, and adapt with it and actually, to be bl quite blunt, learn to live with it and embrace it and make it our friend. This, the alien gives us the ability to, yeah, to really just change our perspectives. And I think we joked before about actually how an alien, how everyone should have an alien so you can kind of telepathically communicate the things that we might feel <laughs> we don't want to necessarily say ourselves, but if it comes from the alien, yeah. then, it, then it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not me saying that, it's the alien. Because yeah, yeah, I'm just the messenger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because <laughs> that, that's, that's definitely part of it as well, is because I'm, I'm very aware that, um, you know, people say I don't talk about religion and politics. Well, you know, politics is, is, is absolutely vital to talk about. And yeah. we've got to move beyond this idea that um, it's okay for everyone to have a different opinion about politics. Like, um, I, off, I use the analogy in one of my articles on my website about driving. And, um, you know, we, we take driving lessons and then we take a driving test. And if we fail that test, we are not allowed on the road. And that's not negative. That's not authoritarian. That's pro, that's, that's positive. That's pro-life. That's stopping people getting killed on the roads. Yeah. Um, and so if somebody says, and um, David Mitchell said this on the Graham Norton show in 2019, he was saying that we've got to a point in our society now where if somebody says, my opinion is that on the road, red traffic light means go. That's my opinion, and you've got to respect it. Actually, no, we've got to stop that type of talk. We've got yeah. to stop that kind of language, and we've got to say, no, there are certain things that are factual and important to agree on, and, and one of them is that the red traffic light means stop. And as a society, we've all accepted that the red traffic light means stop. So it's not okay to have an opinion that the red traffic light means go. Now, of course, I can't force people to have certain opinions like red traffic light means stop, but I can, you know, hopefully with the help of an alien to make it a bit of fun, you know, what does the alien think? Does the alien think that the red traffic light means stop? Yes, it does. You know, <laughs> do, do, do you think the alien was debating on its, on its own planet about whether red traffic light means go or stop? No, they've moved way, way, way past that. Their civilization is trillions of years old and they've moved past these silly debates about whether red means stop or go. Absolutely. We're, we're, I feel like we're so, politics, I think, is, is stagnating on on these these pr on poor quality problems i think mark manson has the book that he talks about i think it's the art the subtle art of not given an f-u-c-k but it's um yeah it's it's the government needs to get itself some better problems because the ones that it's focusing on at the moment are are they're secondary they're not they're not yeah. their term yeah. so continuing the brexit analogy you know you know brexit is a minor admin detail compared to the uh, paradigmatic totality of climate change <laughs> as, as an issue to think about. <laughs> you know, it's, it, we need to think about the world through the paradigm of climate change, not Brexit. And so then when it comes to voting, humans need to vote according to what the physics is saying about climate change, not opinions about Brexit. It's, it doesn't actually matter whether you're pro-Brexit or not. The point is, that's the one question. The question is, how are you going to vote according to climate change? Now, the answer is, because I'm not, I'm not one of these people that wants to get sucked into the idea that it's always wise to talk in questions, talk in mm. questions, you know. Yeah, sometimes that's wise, sometimes that's helpful. But, you know, me and the alien are here to give some answers as well. And, you know, one of the answers is that of the 
of the main parties that talk about climate change, the Green Party is the one that is, that is talking in terms of that paradigm of, you know, you, um, there are lots of different ways to tackle climate change and we have to do all of them simultaneously. So to kind of debate about one little policy or not, you've actually got to debate according to um, ideologies and the ideology of the Green Party, regardless of the detail of the policies, the ideology of the Green Party is to take major action on climate change. Yeah. And therefore, I encourage people to vote for the Green Party because they're aligned with physics and they are aligned with the physics of climate change and the other parties um, are, are, are not. And, and, and part of the reason I don't, you know, I don't stand for the Green Party, I don't work for the Green Party, I don't, I don't want to be a politician because I, can, I think I can make more of a difference by encouraging people to vote for other people who are in the Green Party without coming across as like, I'll oh, vote for me because I've got a vested interest in voting for the Green Party. I don't have a vested interest other than uh, for our planet to be livable and sustainable in the long term. I think it's the best vested interest to have, to be honest with you, because you're not only, you have, you're, not, you're not thinking selfishly, you're not thinking, you're not thinking in terms of economic benefits, you're thinking about the everybody simultaneously, all in one go, as the mm -hmm. one people, the one human race that, that we should be running, which is towards a prosperous and more sustainable future for everybody. And I think, yeah, as a society, talking about what, as a society, I think we've accepted that we, that yeah, there's, there, we have to vote for one party or another. It's this, this choice between the, I want to say the best of the bad, but it's not, you've got one, one idiot on one side and it feels like an idiot on the other. Although like, again, I don't want to go too much into politics, but it's, yeah, we're, we're so stuck with these, with these, with these choices it almost feels like or maybe this is one of the problems people feel like they're they're stuck with these with these choices that doesn't actually give them much variety when actually really the choices that matter are the ones that we make every day and yeah the one that absolutely the one that we that we make when we choose to vote which is voting for the party that has the green agenda at its very core and it is it's the green party could we talk about these two concentric circles of of society on the outer circle and self on the inner circle what, what do they mean could you explain them yeah so this is the so uh, when the alien and i were in queensland in australia the um the alien drew the two concentric rings for me in the sand and it was it was illustrating um the difference between um, self and society. So the inner ring is, is self and the wider ring is society. And um, it was sort of noticing and, and explaining to me that what it's noticed with a lot of humans is that they focus on the self, they focus on that inner ring and they say things that sound very positive, like, oh, I really care about my family. So, you know, I'm gonna vote for whatever's best for my family. And, and, and that's very tempting. And, and you know, and then that's, that's kind of the type of thinking that, um, Donald Trump latched onto very effectively in America, where, you know, forget the rest of the world, you know, forget the fact that our, there's no borders in the sea or the air, um, you know, focus just on America and, and people are losing their jobs in the coal industry. So let's save those people and their families in the coal industry and thinking very, very small. It's, it's basically nationalism effectively. Mm. Um, and, um, and the problem with nationalism is that it doesn't, it doesn't account for the physical reality that we are on a planet with no, borders between our oceans and our um, atmospheric system. So it's, it's out of sync with the physical reality of our planet to think purely in nationalistic terms. Otherwise, why doesn't, why don't we just say, yep, China, just pump out all the air and uh, pump out all the pollution you like into the air because you're thinking about yourself, China. So we have to think as a, as a global collective, as a society, a global society. And therefore we have to think um, 
with the out, uh, in terms of the outer ring, and that is more towards, generally speaking, the left of the political spectrum, whereas the right of the political spectrum is that inner ring that, that appeals to people's um, short-term self-interest. But the, the, the point of the, um, having them as concentric rings is notice that they're not one or the other. They're not, they're not separate. They're not to one side. The, the society does encompass the self. So a bit like we were talking about earlier, you know, if I have a vested interest, it's in seeing our planet be managed sustainably in the long term. Well, that's um, a societal goal, the outering, that also helps me personally. So, you know, if I want to live healthily for um, another X number of decades, that's in my vested interest to have a planet that's managed sustainably. So um, society encompasses the self, but interestingly, self does not encompass society. So the wider ring encompasses the narrow, but the narrow does not encompass the wide. So um, it's a bit like another analogy that the alien gives me, um, uh, that's sort of a, a, a step on from the concentric rings, is if you think about a spider's web, and a spider's web is seen as beautiful because of its complexity. And within, this, within that complexity, there's all these different uh, rings of, of web. Um, but if you, if you keep taking away the different rings, it becomes less and less beautiful. Um, and the, the, again, the inner ring does not, does not encompass the outer rings. So you, you must have those outer rings to encompass the inner rings uh, for it to be beautiful or functional, um, if, you, if you believe in the saying, functional is beautiful. So is, is, in other words, um, on a planet like ours, where there's no boundaries, there's no real boundaries in the oceans and the atmosphere, Maybe on other planets, I'll have to ask the alien, maybe on other planets there are real boundaries between oceans and atmosphere, but on our planet, there are no big significant boundaries in the air and the, atmosphere and, and the oceans. So we have to manage our planet according to the physical reality of it. It's, it's, that's such a, a beautiful way to, to describe society and self, I think, yeah, you. I, I love that analogy, and I think it really it moves on nicely to to the next thing, which I'd love to talk to you about, which is your which is your fundraising, which is all about wildlife and raising money for for the greater outdoors, the 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 outside of not just ourself and society, but the outside of society and how important that is for our survival. So, could you talk about your yeah your work with charities? I'd love to hear. Yeah, so uh, so I work as a freelance fundraising consultant. So I work for a number of different environmental charities and actually a few non-environmental charities as well. Um, and so I look at the overall fundraising strategies, so where, see where there's gaps um, and um, advise them on particular funding applications as well. So to trust and foundations, for example, um, but also um, in the funding landscape in the UK, um, if we're talking about sort of trust and foundations and grants, only about 4% of grants are given to environmental causes and environmental charities. So one of the tricks with environmental fundraising is to be in the 96%. Um, so if I use an example uh, of a charity I worked for um, a few years ago now, uh, the Conservation Volunteers, back in 1997, um, before I was working for them, but back in 1997, they created something called the Green Gym. Um, and it's created by a, a GP called Dr. William Bird, because he found that a lot of his patients were coming to him saying um, that they've got this problem or that problem. And he found himself advising them to go out into nature, get some fresh air, get some exercise. And um, he talked with the conservation volunteers about that because he found himself referring people who are overweight, for example, or um, uh, uh, other conditions to go and do some conservation volunteering because actually when you're digging a hole and planting a tree, it's quite good exercise. So they yeah. formalized that, they called it the green gym. 
And um, then that went on to raise millions and millions of pounds from health funders. So they were not, they were not restricted to, not limited by accessing that 4%. They suddenly opened up a huge other chunk of uh, funding available in the UK. So they had money and I think they still do have money from the Department for Health, for example. You know, and health funders, I was on the phone to funders when I was working for that charity that were explicitly telling me, we're, we're not an environmental funder, but here's £10,000, here's £20,000, because um, we are funding the health benefits or um, similarly the social benefits. So one funder said to me that, yeah, we're not an environmental funder, but we know that you have refugees coming to your conservation sessions, so we'll fund you because we want refugees to be more integrated into society. So here's £10,000, £20,000 for those benefits, not the environmental benefits. So if I've noticed a common theme across the different environmental charities that I work for, one of them is to um, uh, raise money for environmental charities without referring to the environmental benefits primarily um, for, to some funders. I've got goosebumps everywhere. I think the green gym and the work that, that you enhance to be able to, to bring in funding from all different sectors is it's just joined up thinking that I, I, I wish there was more of that's that's amazing and I wanted, when I declared the biodiversity and climate emergency for my local council one of the things I tried to emphasize that we needed to do was we needed to do work and stimulate business and industries in in the in say insulation ventilation that would naturally lead to the outcomes which we need which is reduced emissions and the, the green gym sounds exactly like a system like that where we need to be investing in the things where the outcome is the solutions to the biodiversity and climate emergency and getting people outside connecting them to nature they're not thinking oh this is exercise i've got to do this it's just it's natural it's just like oh i'm i'm, I'm digging a hole i'm going to plant a tree like i'm going to plant some tomatoes the where they might need to be thinking where they maybe were before would be thinking oh I've got to exercise and building up the pressure in their mind and having the stress that goes with that and attaching that I've got to do this because oh, it takes the pressure away because one of the benefits is is exercise and well, yeah I just that's right. amazing I just think that's wonderful that's just fabulous could we talk about your broadcasting work and how you got to meet David Attenborough and Chris Packham I'd love to hear about those um, yeah, so well, David Attenborough then, that was actually, um, while we're talking about the Conservation Volunteers, that was while I was working for the Conservation Volunteers. It was their 50th anniversary in 2009, so they did an internal call out to see um, if anyone had any presenting experience to uh, be uh, the member of staff that presents the um, 50th anniversary film. And so I was basically the only person internally with any sort of presenting experience, so um, that's why I was chosen to uh, present the 50th anniversary film. So that involved, it's all sort of 10, 15 minute um, film, which involved interviewing lots of people, including um, David Attenborough. So that was kind of the, um, the, the highlight of the film. Um, he's one of their vice presidents. So they have a number of sort of high profile vice presidents, but they only call on occasionally to do something. And this was one of the occasions that they called on. Uh, so David Attenborough to, um, uh, to um, answer a few questions um, about his views on the conservation volunteers and how it's changed over the years. So. Yeah, that was a, a great experience. Um, it, was, it was great to meet him. It was very, um, it, it, it was uh, very kind of useful for me actually to kind of um, work with him because I learned quite a few things from him. Um, I think it was there were various things about kind of the ease of which he kind of um, uh, conducted himself in, in the interview. I, I remember noticing that um, I had some ten questions. I had a co-presenter as well, so we, we each asking him five questions. 
and I noticed sort of halfway through the interview that he hadn't fluffed his lines and I hadn't fluffed my lines and Jill hadn't fluffed her lines. So I thought, yeah, we can actually do this in one take. And, um, and so it just helped me to kind of raise my game a little bit and, ju and just visualize and be able to see that, yeah, I, I don't have to be the guy that fluffs my lines and I can do stuff live or I can do stuff in one take. And um, just seeing the way that it was completely normal for him to um, walk up, answer a few questions and go and not kind of get bogged down in, oh, do we need to do a second take, third take? And it even surprised the director, actually. So we got to the end of the um, 10 questions and um, the director said, um, yeah, that's great. Should we go again? Just out of habit, because normally you do these things, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight takes from different angles and all that. But, you know, they had the different camera angles sorted already. Um, and uh, so David just said, um, uh, well, I think that was perfect, but, you know, check it. And if there was a mistake, let's go again. And they checked it. There's no mistakes. So, so that was it. So, so that was one thing I learned from him. Um, and the other thing was to remember that, you know, this guy is really, he's quite old, you know, like, I, I mean, that was, that was 10, 11 years ago. Yeah. And uh, I remember like he was sort of hobbling a bit when he was walking towards us when, when we first met. And I, I, I kind of thought like, I felt like I was talking to my granddad, really. Um, and uh, so he's, he's been around a long time and um, there's a certain sort of natural respect that you get, I think, from, from that. And I think, I think there is something about listening to the elders because they have seen a lot of things before. And um, uh, yeah, I definitely felt like I was talking with my granddad. I also learned from, um, I hope Jill wouldn't mind me saying, I think he doesn't like being kissed on the cheek. So, <laughs> so if, if you ever meet him, it was a slight, slight mistake that Jill made. So um, if you do ever meet him, then... Um, offered to shake his hand or in nowadays with social distancing probably don't even offer to shake his hand so yeah, yeah. give him the <laughs> elbow yeah. yeah get the elbow out <laughs> blooming social distancing oh you had a very amazing chat with chris packham as well about hs2 these two incredible environmental icons of our time i just what knowledge in what knowledge and experience did you have with him i just i loved watching it it's just it's great. Yeah, so this was um, back in December 2019. Um, I, I went on a walk that Chris Packham organised, um, uh, which went along parts of the planned route of HS2. And um, I asked him a quite specific question about kind of what does he think an alien would make of HS2? Because I think we all know that Chris Packham's against HS2. Yeah. So I didn't want to get into kind of um, another yet another conversation about all the pros and cons of HS2 or even all the cons of HS2 in a one-sided way. So I wanted to add value to the conversation that's already existing by, um, you know, no one else is asking Chris Packham what an alien thinks of HS2, you know, this, that's kind of my niche really. So, so I thought I'd better go with that. And um, yeah, he just sort of um, went with it really. And he, he's, he was saying that, um, yeah, if, if aliens kind of parked up at the moon and looked down uh, on earth and looked at particular decisions that we're making and looking at the fact that um, we, um, we're, we're planning a, a high-speed rail route um, in such a way that um, it involves cutting down trees that are 800 years old, etc., which have certain species that are unique to that one individual tree. So when people talk about species unique to trees, they often sort of mean the species of tree. But you have to remember that with certain old-growth trees, the species are unique to that individual tree. It's not the species of tree; it's that individual tree. So you're literally, you know, making species extinct we're talking about insect species and, and um, you know, the, the, the tinier um, species out there, but um, um, there's certain species that are unique to individual trees. So it's, it's a really serious issue when you start cutting down old growth trees and it's not as simple as just planting, um, uh, just planting some trees in, in, its, in its place. So um, that was kind of the, ang the angle that uh, 
we went with. I think Chris also used a, a similar analogy around um, if we had the warning that um, an asteroid was coming to visit planet Earth. I remember, uh, visit, <laughs> visit, such a nice word for it. Plough into and destroy humanity <laughs> is, is where we were going with that. Um, so, you know, um, we've seen it in films, but it could happen in, re in real life. There's an asteroid coming to planet Earth. It's going to make us all extinct. What would the governments do then? And that conversation was pre-COVID. Um, so um, even in the pre-COVID world, um, Chris was saying that um, if we thought that humans were going to go extinct, then they would really suddenly make big, sudden changes. And it's, an, and, you know, like we would uh, try and, uh, you know, blow up that asteroid, for example, you know, we wouldn't think about it for years. We would, we would kick into action and do something immediately. And, um, and, and also it's kind of, yeah. And, and then we, again, we've had that concept reinforced that big changes don't take a long time. Yeah. Changes do not take a long time. This, this has sort of been this embedded um, narrative, this complicit narrative that if, oh, okay, climate change, big changes, that'll take some time. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to take some, much time at all. Look back at um, the CFCs issue in the uh, 1980s when um, scientists um, noticed, was an opinion, they noticed that there was a hole growing in the ozone layer. Um, so government stepped in, banned CFCs, done, job done, pretty much. Um, the same um, immediate, instant, sudden, shocking action needs to happen with climate change. We need to be surprised by the speed of which things happen with climate change. We've seen it again with uh, coronavirus. We, um, if anything, you know, we were too slow. You know, beginning of March, no one was seriously talking about a lockdown. Middle of March, people were screaming for a lockdown. Um, and 23rd of March, it happened. But uh, people are criticizing the government for being too slow within, what, within 23 days? So this is the type mm -hmm. of sudden, uh, shocking action that we are capable of, governments are capable of. Um, and uh, to stop the type of action that the alien does on its planet whenever there's a, a massive emergency, then they just uh, get together and um, take some action the same day. Um, I think the alien's telling me now telepathically that it did have an issue with climate change a few trillion years ago, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> they, they, they sorted it within a few days uh, yeah. with a few legal instruments and that was it. So um, actually even whaling is, uh, is a reasonable success story in, in the past. Um, uh, and uh, that was a fairly sudden action there as well. But I think um, CFCs is the best example in the environmental sector. And that wasn't asking people, this is the, the thing that I kind of, I, I somewhat reluctantly go back to politics all the time, but, um, but the, it's because it's accurate to say that um, CFCs were not, uh, the issue was not resolved by asking the public to use fewer CFCs in their hairsprays. The CFCs issue was resolved by the government stepping in and making a sudden legally binding simple ban. And that is such such a massive point. And this is where we kind of we we have this intersection between people power and our daily choices and what we do and how that creates demand for products that are sustainable. But then the behemoth power of government meeting us to to make sure that our efforts are matched by by policy. And Greta taught me in her in her little book, No One's Too Small to Make a Difference, that we don't have any of those contracts in place right now to make companies adhere to the Paris Climate Agreement. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people think the Montreal Protocol, which said we need to stop making CFCs, is what well, they're hoping that the Paris Agreement is similar to the Montreal Protocol in that it will be that governments have decided to do something and they're going to do it. But I think I just heard, I think it was yesterday on the news that 
it might have even been this morning that the um, radio four um news at six six a m not that I was up at six a m but um yeah there's scientists are saying that one point five degrees is now one year to to three to five years away, and you just think paris was was designed to to get this done and if I may just pick up on a point you mentioned about about trees and it's it literally breaks my heart when I hear or see a tree that's been cut down because I think of all the tiny microscopic organisms, like the little the insects that lived on it, the birds that used it, like the cats that probably climbed up there. Like, and you just, it's, I get really, I get upset about offsetting because people think, oh, it's okay, I can continue to fly because I'm doing this offsetting program. I'm planting new trees in, in Ecuador. And I just think, you can't replace like for like and that is something that we really need to push out there because an 800 year old tree that's been there for for 800 years has i don't i don't know what the 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 rule or the the multiplication times better that it will be but probably 800 times 800 years worth better i don't know but a, a small sapling does not have the same effect as as an ancient tree and i think we need to be stopping deforestation not just being like, oh, it's okay, we'll plant more trees. So it's, mm. yeah, hugely. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I think something that I've learned from the alien is about um, the difference between small solutions and big solutions. Yeah. So um, uh, an, an analogy that um, I use with the alien when we're in Los Angeles. And um, so we were in Los Angeles and we were um, at the top of a skyscraper and we were just sort of having a look um, uh, from the roof of the skyscraper um, at, the, at the landscape of Los Angeles. And then um, we turned around and we saw this, um, this uh, young guy coming up, he had a backpack on and he had this sort of wild grin. And then um, he just started sprinting to the edge of the skyscraper. And then he just basically essentially kept on running. Um, and, um, and so then he was falling. And, um, and uh, the alien was pretty worried because we'd had a conversation before about how humans, when they, um, they, they can't fall very far and stay alive, you know, you fall more than a couple of meters or so, you're going to start really hurting yourself. And this was a, a young man jumping off the top of a skyscraper. So the alien was, you know, really worried for him. But then, um, uh, luckily, that young man pulled a, uh, pulled a big, big uh, cord and a big parachute came out and um, he floated uh, gently to the ground and um, he was base jumping. He was breaking the law, it's not allowed, um, but um, he, he, he was fine because um, he'd pulled one big parachute suddenly. And um, the uh, analogy that we talked about was that, um, that's, that's the, the analogy there, was that's one big solution. And the, um, what, what that base jumper didn't do was he didn't get all these small little cocktail umbrellas and added them together to, yeah. to try and break the fall. And so when people talk about carbon offsetting or even using energy saving light bulbs or driving their car a bit less or, um, or even um, eating a bit less meat and that kind of thing, these are all good things in themselves and you can't say that, they don't, that they're not good, they are good, but they are small things. And, the, and um, the, the analogy is that the government needs to pull the cord, just like it did with CFCs, it needs to pull the cord on carbon and bring out a ban and use fossil fuels for, only for very niche corners of society where we currently don't have other alternatives. We do have alternatives at the moment with renewables, solar, wind, etc., cetera, um, for energy production. So we need to ban the use of fossil fuels for energy production and um, only very niche corners of society where we don't have solutions. It's such a it's such a great analogy. This this big, uh, yeah, the difference between jumping off a building with with loads of cocktail sticks or with cocktail <laughs> umbrellas. Like it reminds me of Up, the movie where he lifts his house on the balloon and the balloons. Like 
I, yeah, I, I think it's great. Yeah, government is needed there to have to have that big impact. And I think, yeah, I think we we spoke about before um, putting a letter together um, that we can attach to this episode and, and another one about that people can just copy, send to their MPs and be like, these are all the things that I want you to do. These are all the things that I don't want you to do. And number one is is banning fossil fuels for energy production because we don't need it and i think yeah we have to we have to be proactive on both sides of the scale in terms of our individual actions and in being proactive about talking to our mps and telling them what we want because they have to listen to us they they have to answer our emails they have to read our letters and yeah if we don't tell them they, they don't know so there's yeah, yeah. There's all those things are important i think i think a lot of people ask oh, what can i do what can i do and i, I do say that the one the one thing to remember is who you vote for you know if you don't do anything else if you can drive a gas guzzling car as much as you want and eat all the meat you want it's it's the most important thing is to tick that box on the ballot paper for green for the greens in whichever country you live in and if you do nothing else in your life, that one act, just moving your hand up or down a little bit to a different box on who you vote for, is so impactful because it, it sets the scene, it sets the, it sets the incentives for the companies to do the right thing. So people moan about companies, but well, who did they vote for, which allowed the government to give those companies the incentives or disincentives to make their products more sustainable. So go, companies will always do what they is in their vested interests. So you need governments who wants to give the companies the right incentives. And also in terms of product prices and things like that, sometimes the most sustainable option is a tiny bit more expensive than the least sustainable option. And people on the, on the absolute poverty line are not going to be going for that slightly more expensive option. But if the governments have made the companies incentivized in such a way that the cheapest option or the only option becomes the environmentally sustainable option, then the, the, the people will be buying the more um, sustainable um, more sustainable option yeah i think there's and just just to be clear we're not saying that you should only just vote green and vote one thing every five years the individual yeah. actions are very important but exactly. the power exactly. of it is is definitely there and i think yeah there's the, sorry the reason, the reason i say it is because i don't hear many other people talking like this mm -hmm. and and it's it's so I, absolutely you know do all those other things as well absolutely but i i I'm, i don't hear many other people um, emphasizing the real paradigmatic importance of having the right government in place and um, so that's why I keep banging one about it. <laughs> it's such a it's such a good thing to, to continue to push forward because it is otherwise it's just going to get lost in 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 the background noise of all the other things that that we that we have to think about but yeah there is this two-sided we need to be tackling it from both sides we need to be mm -hmm. ensuring that our politicians know what we want so they don't just get away with doing what they think what we want or what's in their best interest and yeah looking at the responsibility of our of our own lives and there's this I guess there's this, this dilemma where people think oh yeah it's going back to people don't have a lot of people don't have the the funds to buy the more sustainable products it's the more the more people invest in sustainable products and the more people buy those things the 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 quicker the price will come down. So other people who, who have to live on less and who are more stressed and have more pressure on them in society will then be able to afford those same, I'll put my hands up and say inverted commas, luxuries, because it mm. is at the moment a luxury to be able to be good for, to be good for your future. And yeah, it should yeah. be that way. Yeah, like I say, it's that abundance mindset. It's not one or the other. It's not, it's not either vote 
vote green or for the greenest option on the ballot paper or buy sustainable products it's both that's the, that's the point but um uh, the the other the other kind of if, if we want to go on to another controversial topic the other the other issue of course is this issue of uh, human population my because next question let's dive in yeah yeah because when when we talk about luxuries i think one of the things that doesn't get talked about very much in this um uh, debate around is it population or is it consumption mm. one of the things that doesn't get talked about much is that even if we had no luxuries and even if we didn't all have playstations or smartphones just having the sheer number of 7.8 billion or so people on the planet, all those people need food and food is a huge environmental um, uh, problem. The food production, meat production, but um, the, sheer, the sheer volume of food that is need, needed um, is, is a, a massive issue in itself. Even if we had none of, the, none of the luxuries and just ate and went to the toilets every day and stared at the wall for the rest of the time, we would still be in huge, huge environmental uh, a huge environmental mess. So um, one of the one of the things that you can't say to people, and that hasn't worked, and we thought this might work years ago and it didn't work, um, is is that you can't have a better quality of life. So back in the sort of the eighties, nineties, when people were starting to notice that we had problems of um, uh, global warming, they were saying, well, all those people in China that are currently on bikes, cycling around in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, um, they they might want Ford Escorts one day. And uh, we can't tell them that they can't have it. So what are we going to do then? Well, guess what? All those billions of people in China have now got the equivalent of Ford Escorts. <laughs> um, so you can't say to people um, in, in, in its entirety um, that you can't have these luxuries and expect it to work. So it, it, you, can, you can ask, you can say, please, China, don't have any cars. You can, you can try it, but it's not going to work. It hasn't, it hasn't worked. So, so the realistic solution is to have a smaller human population where you can afford, you've got some leeway, you've got, you, you, can, you can make some mistakes and still not have a runaway greenhouse effect. The problem at the moment is that um, we are, um, we've got a big population with lots of mistakes and we are absolutely on course for a runaway greenhouse effect. So I think, although it's both, it's population and consumption, Again, I talk about population just simply because not many other people are. I mean, actually, Chris Packham does and, and Sir David Attenborough does. Um, but um, I have this, it's, it's kind of the way that my mind works and it's that I'm more interested in the things that people are not talking about. So I'm, I'm creating a show with my alien called Not In The News, where um, um, it's kind of a, a sort of fun quiz panel show type thing. And um, we're going to have things, um, questions relating to stuff that are, that's not in the news. So, for example, you mentioned earlier Greta Thunberg's observation again observation not an opinion that um the uh, warmest 12 year 12 months on record were june 2019 to june 2020 and we are already 1.39 degrees above pre-industrial levels once we get to 1.5 we're in the realms of runaway greenhouse effect that wasn't in the news yeah that wasn't in the news the other day so that's i've given away the first answer to one of my questions in the quiz but um <laughs> you know that's the type of thing that we need to talk about similarly population is um, very rarely talked about, and uh, consumption just gets just gets too much attention. I think relative to the population. I think we definitely have to get more comfortable with talking about population and population in the opposite sense of what I think people immediately jump to, which is you want to cause mass genocide and you say that people <laughs> shouldn't have kids because that is just to be clear again, that is not what we're talking about. We are talking yeah. about 
yeah, the what the school program that Namine, that Solutions for Climate Revolution, this podcast and the school program is striving for, which is getting women and girls into education everywhere in the world. So they have the rights and the ability to choose whether or not they have they have children and they're not yeah. subjected to traditions and enforced to to live a life that a patriarchal society traditionally has enforced upon them and when we have that and when we are getting everybody in school it's that is automatically gonna give the the birth rate a huge reduction because women have more choices and men will be the men in those societies and, and cultures will be better educated to know that actually the world is moving forward and we have to embrace change we have to we have to adapt or, yeah. or we're going to die so it's yeah, Absolutely, yeah, and so, yeah, you've 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 moved on to uh, the solutions to the population problem. Yeah. What I always Sorry. do whenever I, that's fine, yeah. Because but what I what I what I did and what I always do when I talk about population is I deliberately separate the clarity around the problem and then the options for the solutions. Mm-hmm. So the clarity is that we do need to reduce the human population. That's, we need to be really clear on that. Um, how we do it is a separate conversation in a way. And, and, what, and the reason I make that chasm between the two is because often I find that people confuse them. So, yeah. so the minute sometimes you start talking about population, people immediately say, well, you can't kill people, can you? Well, no, I didn't say I want to kill people. I don't want to kill anyone. <laughs> you know, I don't want anyone culled. I don't want anyone like that. And any, any solution involving anything remotely like that. I want people then, to live. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the solutions are very humane and solutions that we want to do anyway, like yeah. educate women in less developed countries. You know, so it's... Um, Past the problem again, and the aliens sort of uh, telepathically telling me here something about the quality of human debates, and it's not particularly impressed because you know you, you just, <laughs> we need to move the quality of conversation about yeah. population away from this ridiculous assumption that um, the solution to whether population is to somehow uh, cull humans or something. Um, that's a very very low quality knee jerk assumption that that should have been removed. You know, in 1970s chats, you know, we shouldn't be talking about that that in 2020 you know we we want a smaller human population there's, there's on the aliens planet it's telling me there's about two billion and that they, they believe that two billion is kind of the right number of uh, aliens to have on the aliens planet and i think it's probably about the same on our planet don't you it's about about two billion is uh, roughly what we can um, live with within our planetary physical limits um and uh, yeah education of women but also the other point is um don't know all the solutions I really I don't have all the solutions to the population issue. I know that education of women in less developed countries is one of them. I know that communication about the personal benefits of smaller families is another solution. Um, I know that raising awareness of the problem is another solution in itself. Uh, don't have all the solutions, but that doesn't mean that it's not a problem. Absolutely, yeah. There's such a, a, a valuable point there in that there will still be some solutions that we are not aware of yet when it ter- when it comes to communicating i think how how the the subject and, and the discussion of population needs to be needs to be become a mainstream topic it needs to be in in the news like exactly like this the 1.39 degrees that we've already excelled it's just oh it's um it's very frustrating when 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 we have such solutions may it be not every single one in the known universe to solving all of our crises but when it's it's literally all here in front of us like it's in white papers it's in it's in articles it's in peer-reviewed papers it's it's black and white in front of us on paper 
and we just need as Greg another great thing that I love that Greta says is we all more people need to do their homework and I think this yeah the if I may just touch back back on on the quality of life I think there needs to be more more chat about how actually when you become more of a when you embrace the eco warrior within your quality mm. of life actually tends to go up because you're living more in line with your values because what you yeah. realize is the unsustainable the consequences of unsustainable lifestyles is it's torture to animals it's it's torture for people it's torture to your body internally whether it's the the food that we eat whether it's the environment that that that, that creates it's it all everything in society the current status quo that we have even the kind of the not normal that's almost coming into i guess post the the first wave of this virus it's nothing it doesn't really it doesn't resonate with what i think human beings truly are which is mm. compassionate kind loving caring beings who like yeah and you, you touch on the idea that smaller families are better because it gives people that that intimate connection i think one of the things that i get quite i get really concerned about is when you hear very in, intelligent incredible scientists and people around the world pledging that they won't have babies and i just think you're the exact kind of people that we need to be having kids like you need to be having like like fleets of children all your little eco warriors because those are the people that are going to have all the beliefs and the traits and the mindsets and the characteristics that you have so it's it's yeah a complex issue yeah it's, it's i mean yeah you're touching on kind of past the problem here is we're often preaching to the converted so that's why i talk yeah. about um communicating the personal financial benefits of having slightly smaller families than seven children you know if you have two children for example then the, the same financial resources can go to and same parental emotional and psychological resources can go towards uh, giving two children a great upbringing rather than seven children a mediocre or bad upbringing there's also that study if you've seen uh, the study of uh, rats going around in a maze and when they uh, and and um, so first of all, they, 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 they put a couple of rats into a maze and, they try and, and the rats try and get out. Um, and then they, and um, if the rats encounter each other, they're kind of quite polite and they kind of just um, rush past each other quite politely. Um, but then when you add more and more rats, they get more and more aggressive. Um, and so the same is, is, is with humans, that you know, the more people we have, the more, um, the more kind of, um, uh, or the less that each individual seems to matter and, and the more kind of dismissive we are of other people. And I think if we want a kinder world as well, where we really believe that each individual matters, then we need fewer individuals. Combine that with the point I was making about if we do nothing but stare at the wall and then eat and then go to the toilet and then stare at the wall again, we, we're still consuming too many resources to um, process all that waste. Then uh, the phrase I like to use is there's too much we. Yeah, I love so double it. double meaning. There's too many people, but there's almost there's also literally too much urine. All the chemicals, all the plastic, all all the land required for all the um, uh, sewage treatment plants, um, all the energy required just to keep those people alive, um, is, is is too great. So if we have, I think we can have a smaller human population with a better quality of life, and I think that's more humane than a massive human population with a really bad quality of life it's yeah it's it's brutal and it's 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 so fine 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 line cutting to to the point but it is it, it's we i just I, I have to question the i mean there's this that statistics that if the statistic that if people if we were all plant-based in the world we we're all vegetarian at the very least we would have enough grain that we feed to animals on the planet 
produced by the land that we've cleared to create crops for animals that we then eat if we were all vegetarian there would be enough grain to feed the world eight times over so there's mm. this like we do have i don't know the numbers about what is the i guess two billion people might I, I don't know the numbers but i in terms of how many people would be sustainable on the planet but i think there is this this idea that i keep having to to go back to and i keep thinking about and it's, it's definitely something that i would i would love to keep the conversation going about which is the yeah, sharing yeah. of resources which i think is we're chronically not doing at the moment on the consumption side of it absolutely again it's that abundance mindset that um i'm not saying that it's um only population um and uh, don't worry about consumption i'm saying it's both i'm, yeah. I'm em again, emphasizing one particular point because i don't hear many other people talking about it um but on the consumption side yeah absolutely eating less meat um potentially banning meat could could be a huge a uh, huge move but even 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 if uh, we don't go as far as banning meat um putting in incentives and uh, governmental supports to encourage people to eat less meat to have the vegetarian options cheaper um to have uh, you know possibly even subsidized you know like these crazy ideas that no one talks about um you know uh, again i don't want to go into solutions in too much depth because then people debate the solutions and it's more about the ideology of um, having a government that supports um, a low meat world and exactly how they do that I'm going to leave to other people to um, debate because I don't pretend to be a policy expert in those in those detailed questions I do know that from the aliens point of view it's quite shocked that on, on earth um, people go around eating other sentient beings it's kind of like it, it thinks it's a real shame like it's, it, it's really sad actually that one sentient being eats another sentient being you know on the aliens planet they get the resources and chemicals and energy that it needs from inert chemicals and uh, substances in, in the atmosphere and in ponds and things like that. And it doesn't need to go around eating other sentient beings with feelings and emotions. Yeah, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very, very good point. I think I'm, I, I might just bring up also the fact that I think I believe that banning factory farmed animals in, in mega farms and industrial processes is, is what we need to do. I mean, I'm, 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 huge i'm a huge advocate of regenerative ag agriculture and silver pasture because we need to put animals back on the land to start growing soil because otherwise we're all of us i mean all of our soil at the moment if we continue to, pro to, pro to produce the grain that we are for the animals that we would then be feeding to people around the world we would have we'd still have the same problems because that's mass the mass agriculture the chemicals the petrochemical herbicides pesticides that we're pouring on these monocultures is literally it's killing the microbiome we have 55 to 60 years left of topsoil and mm. that is something that is, is such a huge issue that i really would like to hear more more discussion about because it's what we're going to do if we beat no bees no trees no soil mm. like we well maybe impossible burgers will be will be growing all of the synthetic meat by then but I sure as I, I do not want to be eating synthetic stuff. I want to be putting stuff out of healthy, beautiful, umptuous smelling soil that's just been fresh plucked from the ground. And I want everybody in the world to be able to have that right. And I think moving animals back to the land, I think this is where we've gone so wrong with agriculture is that we've, we've separated, we've disrupted the natural cycle. We've taken animals off the land, put them in factory farms and all of the raw sewage that they create, just like you say, too much weeding, too much poop, too much pee from the animals it's polluting environments in in southern america especially and what's horrifying in in areas and communities of color there's disproportionate 
dumping of, of animal waste on fields in in communities where they are majoritively people of colour, if not only people of colour. And there's this, it's, I'm going into, I think, what's the documentary called? What the Health now? But it's, yeah, it's this, we need to re rebalance the circle of life and re-put the pieces back together there again, because that's, I think that's where, yeah, restoring things back to the way that they were before, I guess, not them going, not... Yeah, no. <clears throat> Sorry, Karen. Well, uh, well um, it's interesting you say about the way that things were before, because um, in the early days of humanity, we, we did live sustainably. Um, yes. So when, when I took the alien to Australia, and we had, we had a boomerang throwing lesson, and, um, and uh, the alien then said to me that of all the objects that it's seen on, on Earth, uh, the smartphones, the planes, the cars, um, all, all the high-tech stuff that it's in, interacted with as well, its favourite technology was actually the boomerang. Nice. Um, and uh, the reason for that was that it represented the circular economy. It represented the idea that um, if you're hungry and you need some lunch and it's 40,000 years ago, um, you, you throw a boomerang and you either get lunch or you get your boomerang back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, possibly both. Um, yeah. So, it was, you know, around 40,000 years ago was a time when humans were living sustainably. And um, basically, you know, it's not, it's not that it's impossible for humans to live sustainably. It's that we've, uh, in our current culture, chosen not to. Um, that's, uh, that's the problem. There's, there's, there's many different simultaneous solutions that we need. It's not just agriculture and topsoil, which are massive, massive issues in themselves. It's not just any produ energy production. There's the whole plastics crisis. There's, uh, there's a lot of wildlife and biodiversity. And there's, there's so many different environmental solutions that we, we, we need that um, uh, kind of uh, governmental approach to, to do, to really solve these things um, simultaneously so um, uh, it's not just it's not just one solution it's and it's not just one problem there's there's so many different things that are causing the um, well so many different things to think about and so many different solutions that need to be done simultaneously not sequentially so not kind of we'll sort that and then we'll sort then we'll move on to the next one we need we need it to be we need it to be simultaneous absolutely joined up thinking synergies in in processes and yeah Gosh, what a discussion. If I may just finish off with asking a few little questions. What has been the most important lesson on your journey so far? Um, yeah, so I think the most important lesson uh, that I've learned is to think like an alien. So it's, uh, I, I think, like I say, there's lots of, there's lots of other people that can um, debate the detail of what exactly to do about agriculture. I don't have those answers what exactly to do about population, I don't have those answers. But um, what I have learned is that somebody needs to be talking about this big picture idea of thinking about our, our, our problems as if we're not from this planet. And, um, you know, if we went to another, if we went to the aliens planet, and the aliens said that, um, um, oh, we've, um, we're on this little planet, it's about the size of your moon, there's, uh, there's 70 billion of us, but yeah, we don't really think that population is an issue. Would you really say to the alien, yeah, keep going with 70 billion, don't reduce it. Of course we wouldn't. So it's thinking like that, it's thinking about how would we advise another alien or how would an alien advise us? And then, then things sound a bit more ridiculous um, in terms of the status quo. Um, and of course it would be ridiculous if we went to the alien planet, it's the size of the moon and they've got 70 billion. Obviously mm -hmm. we would say one of your many solutions is to reduce your population. So thinking like an alien in um, the few examples we talked about, of course, of course, in the, in the book, I go into lots of other examples and we've only got 
we've only got an hour or so, so we can't um, use a hugely wide range of examples, but it's the, it's the way of thinking that I've learned, so to, to think as if we're not human. I love that answer. I think it's just brilliant. I could talk about this, this concept of alien places and the alien for just hours. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. What worries you the most? Where do you think we need to focus more attention? We might have already touched on this, but yeah, no, we've kind of answered it already. I think, um, uh, as you, uh, I think I don't know if you used the word uh, straight for the jugular, but I kind of <laughs> I like to go straight for the jugular yes. on um, on the things that we are not talking about. So, um, in, in in summary, you know, it's it's politics and population. Um, not many people are talking about um, who they vote for as a key solution. And not many people are talking about population as a key solution. So I'm worried that these things are not being talked about enough. And so that's partly why I want the show called Not in the News, because I actually find the most interesting things are the things that are not talked about on the news. They're not on the BBC News every day. They're not on Sky News. The politicians aren't talking about them. And yet they are the most uh, important things to laser in on. Yeah, away from mainstream media and towards positivity and, and pro-action. Brilliant answer. What gives you hope? Um, yeah, so the thing that gives me hope is um, probably an answer you haven't had before, but I'm, I'm going to use the phrase cause and effect. Um, so the thing that gives me hope is, is cause and effect. And, this, and what I mean by that is that um, um, if we do um, have governments in power that really want to solve the environmental crises, they will. Um, and so if we do vote for these governments, they will, they will do everything they can to solve them. And that's what gives me hope. It's, it's sort of, we're not in a situation where we don't have control over things. We do have control. We're just choosing not to use that control. Um, or we, we're choosing to say that it's inevitable that we'll get to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Just like we did a lockdown for coronavirus, we can do some sort of equivalent for climate change. And it's that cause and effect between what we decide to do and how many parts per million of carbon there is in the atmosphere. That's what gives me hope because we're talking about physics, we're talking about chain reactions and cause and effect. And so if we um, choose to change um, what we do, there will be an effect. And um, what we do will be either positive or negative. But the thing that fundamentally gives me hope is that cause and effect exists. Because I think some people forget that, you know, it, um, things are not inevitable. We have chosen to chuck loads of carbon in the atmosphere. And so we can choose to not chuck loads of carbon in the atmosphere. And um, so cause and effect is what gives me hope. I think that's a great answer. It's very physics related, which I, which I love. That's wonderful. Where can um, people find you on, online, on um, podcasts, places? Like where's, where's best to get in contact with you or follow what you're doing at all? So my main website is www.atallsearth.co.uk. So you can find links to most of my things from there. Um, the Alien Places podcast is on my website and also on Spotify at the moment um so and hopefully some more places um uh in due course but uh, people can find the uh, podcast uh, 16 episodes so far um on spotify as well as my website and um on twitter it's at atles earth and instagram at atles earth as well brilliant yeah highly recommend people to go and check out your work because uh, ailing places is i think it's yeah it's 
it's changing it's life-changing i think it's it's a wonderful wonderful perspective if you'd like to follow our work at solutions for climate revolution you can check out our new website we've just recently rebranded at namanesolar.com and you can follow what we do on instagram at namanesolar so i'll pop all those links that atul and i've mentioned in the box below it's just been an absolute pleasure to chatting to you at all thank you so much for your time um, i can't wait to see where alien places is going to be and i really hope that radio 4 gives you that slot one yeah because i think it's it's so in line with with yeah with current thinking and the way that society needs to to move towards i think it's yeah it's a beautiful perspective perspective so thank you for all your work and everything that you do great well thanks very much jesse so um uh, uh, from the alien and me thanks very much for having us and uh bye alien. for now yeah, thank you, Alien. Hello, Alien, how are you? <laughs> Hi, yeah, the Alien says, uh, hello, Chessie, hello. <laughs> <laughs> hello. How's your week been since you last chatted? How you, what you... Uh, yeah, good, thanks, yeah. Um, yeah, just been um, uh, doing various bits of bits of work. I released a video recently with um, me and the Alien looking at a marine conservation project in Bournemouth, so where is it oh i'd love to see that oh right yeah i've only just put it up i think at the weekend i put it on my website so it's on my home page now so atlsearth.co.uk is it the one with the beach with the with the concentric circles with self and society um no no that is one of mine but that's on the alien page um uh no this is um on the home page it's um with um artificial reef units that were put in um under the water at pool bay um to um, help uh, provide habitats for marine wildlife and uh, it's interesting because they've been 3D printed and with that 3D printing you can create um, all these different nooks and crannies and tunnels and things like that in these little blocks of concrete that um, kind of look, look a bit like um, um, uh, what, what, who are those baddies from um, uh, Doctor Who? The Daleks. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Looks like a load of Daleks have been put into the water um, but instead of the, the bubbles kind of pushing outwards, they're tunnels going in. Wow. Um, and that gives kind of um, various marine life um, little, little microhabitats to, um, uh, to, to, to live in and to uh, have shelter from predators and that kind of thing. That's so cool. I suppose it's, it's with the little inlets, you're really increasing the surface area. So, and yeah, obviously the protection from the external elements. Because coral, I guess it has all these little inlets, doesn't it, where little things can go in and just create a little house and just yeah do their thing yeah so it's recreating that complexity of habitat so the different um the, the different reef units have kind of little overhangs and they've got all these different layers so it's not just a smooth surface but it's rough so that um various species can kind of cling onto it and um, um like seaweed and mosses and that kind of thing um, and then there's sort of tunnels for oysters and you get different marine life that have different preferences on their tunnels really? so some so some 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 prefer like a, a two-way um, tunnel, so you can you can go in one side and out the other. Yeah. And others prefer a tunnel where you've just got one way in, and then it's a um, it's a dead end. So that then they know that they can just one direction because anything that's going to get them is going to come from one direction rather than two. So they've got all these different preferences. It's really interesting. That's so incredible. Gosh, the natural world like literally never ceases to just like blow me away from so, like you just think like, oh, I know some stuff now, yeah, I'm, I'm doing some good, and then you, yeah, that's just amazing, and you just hear just never ceases to just take my breath away. Yeah. 
Well, that's the thing. I do think one of the things that I've learned uh, from um, sort of my career in the environmental sector is that because, partly because there's always more stuff to learn yeah. and um, there will always be more facts and figures that you can churn off the top of your head or more interesting nuggets here and there that you don't know that someone else knows. Actually, there's, there's a lot of diminishing returns about like how much useful it, how much more useful it is to have that extra knowledge. Um, so that's why I went down the path of kind of using an alien because actually the most important thing is, is not what we know, but how we think and how we actually um, approach things. Um, because um, without that, it's kind of, it, you know, we, we can just churn out more and more facts and figures. And um, you get people like uh, me and Greta Thunberg bashing our heads against the wall. But actually it's, it's because of the fundamental way that human, the human mind is um, thinking and, and that we're make, creating a narrative that's okay to think short term, for example. Mm. Um, and uh, you know it's perfectly normal to think in terms of five-year cycles and that's why I've said that the alien is a billion years old to just completely break out of you know, you know five five years is, is like less than five nanoseconds to to an alien that's a billion years old so yeah. um, and yet we've got this un, unwritten kind of acceptance that when us humans are not really going to stick around forever and mm. what does forever mean it really you know we think long term means 50 years or what if you're coming from a different planet where you know the parents of the alien are so old that it takes eight minutes to say the, the number of years that the alien's parents are old you know trillion 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 for eight minutes you know yeah. <laughs> that's such an incredible uh, such a great concept and it like so i feel like we're on such the same wavelength because it's yeah when people say oh i'm not going to be around like we've got to do it for the kids i'm just like yes absolutely we have to do it for future generations but we're going to be here as well. Like it's you, it's me. It's like people between people over the age of 20 and, and under the age of, of 40 or 50, like we're the ones like we still want to be living for a long time as well. So I really feel like we've got, yeah, the, the alien is on our side. <laughs> we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's partly, it's also like some, what, something that like I tackle in the book is kind of this idea to, to, to get around that issue that you're talking about, that some people think oh, won't, it won't matter to me because I'll, I'll be dead by the time I'm, 85 or 90 or something well it's kind of that's a problem in itself so why don't humans have higher standards about how long we want to live for like you know why don't we want to live for a billion years the aliens a billion years old exactly i was like i was watching this really interesting interview yesterday uh what was his name robert he's incredible he's written loads of books he's really amazing person but he was saying like um yeah, why, why, why are we so limited by these, these sort of these thoughts that we have? Like, why are we not striving to live ha happy, healthy lives? Like, why are we, why are we limiting ourselves? And he also one of his arguments is um, when we face our own mortality and we start thinking about death, it really frees us, and it, it means that we we're much more connected to life because as soon as we as soon as we're born, we start to die. Well, as soon as we're born, we're technically dying. So it's mm. by us not thinking about death and confronting it and being like, oh, actually I am mortal. I'm not this incredible human being apex predator at the top of the food chain. I'm actually, I'm actually super vulnerable. I'm very fragile and I need to, yeah, have, have a relationship with death so that I can, by definition, understand and appreciate life. And I was just mm. like, wow, that is really amazing because I just love to have this, this, this daydream and this thought in my mind. I'm like, cause thoughts become things. I'm like, I'm going to live for thousands and thousands of years. <laughs> I'm like, I would love to yeah. live for thousands of years. Like it would be amazing. 
Yeah, have you heard of that uh, concept called the age wave, where um, basically, so, so at the moment, we kind of, uh, we're accepting that we'll live for 85, 90 years, and, uh, and that's it. But um, some people are thinking that the first person to live to 200 years old has already been born. Yeah. Um, and so the, person, the first person to live to 200 is alive now. And um, what's, what might happen, it's obviously a theory, it's not, it can't, can't be proven for another 100 years or so, is that um, the people, when, when people who are, um, or it might have even happened already, people now who are kind of 70, 80, by the time they, they'd get, they get to 80, 90, maybe the thing that would have killed them gets cured. So they live another 10 years and the thing that would have killed them then gets cured and they live another 10 years. And you, and you keep going like that until you, you end up dying when you're 200 because the thing that would have killed you has always been cured or at least treated better. And so at some point in um, future human history, we might get to this point where you're riding this wave of kind of, so the, hence the age wave, you're riding this wave of you're almost dying, but then it's cured, almost dying, then it's cured, almost dying, then it's cured. And before you know it, humans might well be living to 500,000 years. And then before you know it, you get to a billion years. In fact, alien is, is telling me now that, that that's how they got to um, live to a billion years on, on the aliens planet, because they just kept, in the early days of its civilization, they had this age wave phenomenon going on. Um, and then, um, and, and now everyone can live to trillions of years old. Epic. And it's why they're green. It's why he's green. He's so sustainable. He's literally become the green being eco-warrior <laughs> that we all need to yeah. be. I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um,